Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. And welcome to our first installment of the Opera Diva series. I'm so glad that you could join us this afternoon for this very special edition. Carmen Balthrop has an astonishing range of repertoire from Baroque opera to contemporary song literature. She has appeared with most of the major opera companies in North America, including the Metropolitan, San Francisco, and Houston, as well as European opera houses. Her many orchestral appearances include oratorio and concert performances with the New York Philharmonic, National, Boston, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Houston, and Detroit symphonies. Please welcome soprano Carmen Barber. Good afternoon. Hello. How are you? I am doing well. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is a very, a very special occasion that you are here with us, and we are so honored with your presence. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much, Patrick. You are certainly welcome. Now I want to talk about your your career as an as an opera singer. Uh, what initially sparked your interest in pursuing opera as a professional career? Well, of course, that's a question that I'm asked often, and uh, it's it's a beautiful story, really. It's it's turned into a lovely story. I was uh, eight years old in my parents' home, and, of course, um, we had Saturday chores, my brothers and I, and and my chore was to clean the house while my mother went to the market. And my father had a little radio and television shop, sort of a hobby uh, that he had set up in our basement of our home. And uh, one Saturday I was running the vacuum cleaner and I turned it off and because I heard I heard something very unusual coming from the basement. And I went to the top of the steps, and I asked him, I called out, I said, Daddy, what is that? And he said, that's opera. And so I came down the steps, and I sat some, somewhere in the middle of the steps. And what he was doing was um, testing some speakers in terms of the intensity that they could take for a little radio that he was repairing. And I heard this voice come through that radio speaker, and it touched my heart. It pierced my very soul. And... I asked him at the end of it, who was that? And he said, that was Leontine Price, and she's an African mm. So I said, it was, I guess, something came through that radio and just, as I said, touched my very soul. And I think what happened, uh, the gift to sing, of course, I believe is from God, and something was awakened in me. And I began at that from that moment on to try and recreate that sound myself. So that's how it all oh. started. <laughs> that is magnificent. So tell me about uh, when you initially uh, began uh, the process of auditioning for the Metropolitan Opera. Well, that came through the competition. I actually uh, had finished my master's degree at Catholic University. And um, during the time I was a student there and for a few years afterwards, because I, I had made my operatic debut in, actually in uh, Baltimore Opera, I was the offstage voice, uh, the high priestess in the opera Aida, that Baltimore produced, so that was my debut as an opera singer. But um, between the years of graduation from uh, my master's degree, um, I say for about three or four years, uh, I was encouraged to enter the Met competition, and I felt I wasn't ready yet, and so I delayed it. And one year in 1975, I decided it was time to prepare for that competition. And uh, I was on a quest. I had, again, an inspirational moment inside me, an intuitive moment that said, now, do this now. It's yours. And so I put together my arias, and I worked with my coach at that time, who was uh, Dr. Michael Cordovana. He's since passed on, and he was my, my soulmate in terms of coaches, and I miss him very much. But we prepared for the competition. I went to the National Gallery where they had the preliminary rounds. And I remember there's another little story there, if you'd like for me to tell you. Sure, uh, sure. That morning, uh, the morning of the, uh, the preliminaries, I 
was practicing my music, and of course I had my music on the piano. I had my tea and honey and singing, and then it was time to to head off to the competition. But I also remember I was a little bit ill. I had somewhat of a sinus cold, so I was a little uh, apprehensive about how things would actually go. Strangely enough, I could sing clearly in the middle of the day, and my audition was 1 o'clock. <laughs> so, but when I first woke up, of course, there was lots of phlegm and that sort of thing, and in the evening it would come again, but I could sing, so I decided I would go ahead. I got down to the National Gallery. I parked my car. I walked over up the steps into the National Gallery, and this was what we called the traditional, you know, all call, and so there were many rounds and groups of people that were going ahead of me. And when it was time for me to step up, I looked in my case, and the one piece that I absolutely knew I needed to start with, to begin with, was not in my music folder. And it dawned on me that I had left it on the piano at home. It was an unusual piece. It was from Julius Caesar. It was the uh, Quisento Odio. And I said, if I don't start with that piece, I don't quite know how the outcome of this is going to be. So the young lady who was there taking names and and, uh, telling each one when they would go in, I went up to her and I said, I need to go and get my music. And she looked at me strangely. She said, but you're supposed to have five pieces. I said, I have four. I need to get the other one that I left on my piano when I was uh, practicing this morning. She said, well, why don't you just sing something else? I said, you don't understand. (laughs) I need to start with this piece of music. So she said, well, I can just push you back to the end, but, um, you know, you were supposed to go next. And so with that, long story short, I jumped in my car. I raced to the house. All the lights on the way were green. I left the motor running. I ran in. I got my music. I jumped back in the car. I drove this time right up to the the museum because uh, I had parked further away. Fortunately, there was a parking space. Someone just pulled out, and I pulled in and parked, ran up the steps. All the other applicants had gone. The last one was singing. I ran in. I took three deep breaths. Literally, this is, I am not making this up, and I am not being dramatic. (laughs) And I went on stage, and I sang. And the judges decided that I did not need to go and do the secondary round. I could come to the finals, which were here, still here in Washington, the regional finals. So I came back to the regional finals. I think it was on a Sunday. That was on a Friday. And I won first place. And the first place winners were to go on to New York to the, to the um, secondary round there in the finals. Semifinals, and I went to New York, and there's another story. <laughs> I don't know what it is with me and stories, but uh, when you get to New York, you're supposed to take uh, coaching from the coaches at the Met. And, of course, um, I felt, as I said uh, initially, extremely prepared and intuitive about this competition. And when I went into the coach's session with him, he he was wonderful. He had lots of excellent ideas uh, to draw my attention to these things. But at at one point in the coaching, I felt this is a little bit overwhelming right now. I think I should leave well enough alone. And I looked back, and I had made it to New York to the semifinals. I said, why don't I just keep doing what I've been doing? And uh, I'll, I'll engage myself in the coaching at another time. And so I explained this to the coach. But he was adamant. He said, you must take this coaching. I mean, this is what, when you come to the semifinals, this is what we give you. I said, I understand, and I'm so appreciative. But could you give mine to maybe someone from the Midwest who doesn't have the opportunity to coach with someone on the East Coast? Well, that got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and so uh, the coach reported me, as you as you might think, to the uh, the chairman of the auditions. And um, But by that time, because I, I felt a little bit stressed, I actually left New York, I came back home, and I had a couple more sessions with my coach, Dr. Cordovana, here. And when the chairman of the auditions called my home, he said, I understand that you have left the city and that you are home and that you refused the coaching. I said, well, um, it's not because I'm being obstinate. I just feel as though everything the coach has to say is wonderful, but I don't have the 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 space, if you will, to to." digest all of it and and employ all of it into what I'm doing. Um, So I wanted to share that coaching with someone else. But I promise you I will be back for the semifinals. 
He said, well, if you don't win this competition or you don't place well, then we, we don't take responsibility. I said, I understand. Thank you. I came back mm-hmm. that following Saturday for the semifinals. I made it into the finals. There were 11 of us. Uh, I think I was number nine. And the rest is history. I won first place. That is magnificent. That is such a story. It really but, but I is. Think, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it, you know, it goes back, Patrick, to my training and the way I was uh, always trained by my, I had fabulous teachers. And one of the things that was a, a theme, a thread through the, through their teaching to me was to always, you know, feel confident and competent about myself and my own decisions and judgment. Of course, basing them on sound training and and and, but mostly on, on on relying on myself to feel that I could direct myself in a moment like that. And I just knew that if I were allowed, the best thing about me was the long lyrical line. If I were allowed to to present that as the first thing you heard me do, I would be okay. And and so I I, I you know tribute that to my teachers and the training and how they taught me to be independent and an independent thinker in that respect. Mm. You know, on YouTube, you know, YouTube is such a jewel because when you were talking about the competition and you mentioned um, the Quecento deal from um, Guido Cesare by yes. Handel, I actually found that on YouTube. Oh. So I want to take a moment to play an excerpt of that for the listeners. This is soprano Carmen Balthrop at age 26 singing at the Met uh, competition. Thank you. The eighth contestant now is Carmen Balthrop. A soprano, 26 years old, from the Mid-Atlantic region, Alexandria, Virginia. And she's chosen for her first aria, Que Sento Odio, from Handel's Julio Cesare. That was the piece that you sang for that <laughs> historic audition. Yes, and I was. must credit, uh, there's a young man, I think it is at any rate, on uh, YouTube, uh, Vincero1979. I must give um, that shout-out. He has done a wonderful job compiling all of these um, videos of you on YouTube, and that's how I was able to find that clip. So if you ever oh, go on okay. YouTube, listeners, that's a wonderful channel to go on and see many more um clips and excerpts of Ms. Balthrop singing. So I definitely want to say thank you for that particular channel on YouTube. Okay. Now tell me about um, Trimonisha. How did that uh, whole process come about, you uh, being a part of, of that opera? Because that's an opera that has definitely given you a lot of a lot of critical acclaim. Well, are you ready for the next story? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. I was in the Wolf Trap uh, 
troupe uh, training. Uh, they had uh, the Young Artist Program there. And uh, that summer, it was a summer program, that summer I had already had a major part in The King and I, and I played the part of Top Tim, and Roberta Peters was Mrs. Anna. And so I had my opportunity to work with a with a grand diva, a grand star, of course, a coloratura, famous coloratura. And so, um, but in the company you were trained uh, dramatically, you were trained musically, vocally, so we had a lot of wonderful coaches and everything. And so it was a summer of wonderful training and also performance. Toward the end of the summer, there was something special coming along, and the Wolf Trap Company decided that they wanted to present an opera that uh, its first production was uh, done, I think, in Atlanta, and it was called uh, Tremonitia an opera written by the ragtime king, Scott Chaplin. And so they wanted to bring that whole production set, uh, singers, performers, costumes, everything intact, and bring that to Wolf Trap to present to the audience. And so they did that, but they picked up the chorus, I think, and some of the smaller roles locally. And so I had the opportunity uh, to do the role of Lucy. Lucy is Tremonisha's best friend. Uh, At that time, Tremonisha was uh, played by Alpha Floyd, so Lucy, along with Tremonisha in the storyline, is kidnapped by the conjurers. And uh, ironically enough, Lucy has one line, one solo line to sing in the entire opera, and then she does the duet, uh, a real slow drag, with Tremonisha. And so um, I fell in love with this music. I thought it was the most fascinating combination of of this hypnotic rag rhythm and classical singing that I had ever experienced in my life. And um, ironically enough, uh, the tenor, who was um, the boyfriend of Tremonisha, was played by Seth McCoy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, Seth and I were just great friends. And so I, um, one day I was, one morning I was home and I received a phone call from the conductor and he said, we have a problem. Seth McCoy has come down with laryngitis. Uh, we have an understudy for him, but the understudy does not feel confident enough to sing the aria, wrong is never right. It has a couple of A's in it. And so they said, we think, we thought about it, and we thought that since you were kidnapped with Tremonitia, you could come back along with her when she's rescued and sing that aria that the tenor things, because it it is her boyfriend who rescues her. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, being me, (laughs) okay, I'm I'm ready. (laughs) So I I remember that day I practiced that aria. I must have been playing around with that for about five or six hours that day, and I went to rehearsal and I sang through it about two or three times with the conductor and the orchestra before. And we decided not to tell the cast members anything about that, because as I said, they knew that Seth would not be there, but the understudy was going to go on and do the other parts, which made sense for a male to do with Tremonisha. And so at the time that the the uh, aria appeared in the in the production, I stood up, and while well, everyone sat down as they normally did, and the look of shock on their faces was amazing, and I sang the aria. And in the audience that particular night was Gunther Schuller, who, mm. of course, later orchestrated the, the same opera, with a European, more European orchestral uh, layout, and Vera Lawrence, who had the rights to Tremonitia from the Joplin family for its production, they came to my dressing room at the end of that performance, and they knocked, and I looked at them, and they said, the next time Tremonitia is produced, you will be Tremonitia. And about six months, I had the Metropolitan Opera Competition came up, which I won, but... I received a call about four or five months before that asking me uh, from Houston Grand Opera saying, we're going to produce Tremonitia. We were told that we had to offer the part to you first. Are you interested and are you available? We're going to start rehearsals in May. I said, sure. And then I went on and won the Met first place. And so one month after winning the Met, I went to Houston as, as of course, the first place Met winner now to do Tremonitia. No one had any idea that Tremonitia would take off the way it did. But that's the story with Tremonitia and how I became involved in it. That's so magnificent. Such a wonderful <laughs> story. And, and and the fact that it, that opera is so, I guess, um, 
contrary to Scott Joplin being, you know, the king of ragtime, but he's produced this this operatic masterpiece. It's such an amazing thing. Right. Now, tell me about some of the notable singers that you perhaps feel have made an impressionable mark on your career. Well, I can I can absolutely when when I'm whenever I'm asked that question, I can absolutely give you three names, and these were women that I absolutely studied and, and adored uh, in terms of their work. They're very different. They're very unique. Um, and, again, I, I never look for total perfection in a, in a person, but I, I try to understand the whole humanity of their of their voice and, and how they handle it. And, of course, Leontine Price is first on my list. And then mm-hmm. comes Janet Baker. She's a, she was a British mezzo-soprano. And then a German, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Those three women are, for me, the, you know, it. The, they're just masters of of singing. You know, I, I'm familiar with all of those names, but particularly Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, because um, when I talk, of course, you know that I, I as, as along with you, share a relationship with Mrs. Hope, uh, Ben Hope's mm-hmm. mother, and of course, he had the opportunity to go and study with her. And so I've looked at so many pictures and programs and, you know, he was in master classes. So that that yes. is definitely a name that rings a bell. And those are definitely three magnificent um, opera legends. Well, let me let me add to that. Uh, there is one mm-hmm. male singer, and that is Ben Holt. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, this I had the opportunity, of course, to befriend Ben Holt and to perform with him and he was an absolute treasure, gone from us far too soon, but he was an absolute wizard, an absolute master performer and singer. And it was, I mean, my life has really been, uh, you know, made complete by having gotten to know him and to perform with him as I did. So I am so thankful that God put him here. And and I will do my best to try and, and with my students, I always share uh, any footage that I have of Ben so they can really see how it should be done. Wow, and I'm sure Mrs. Hope will really appreciate that. Um, now, let's, let's move on. I want to hear about this Divas Night Out concert, just the <laughs> title itself. I mean, I thought, you know, as you probably know, I love Facebook. And for those who are on Facebook, right. please follow me on Facebook. Uh, my name is Patrick D. McCoy on there. And I also have a page, Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music. But just going back to Facebook, I always post things myself, but I always find wonderful things being posted. And my friend Lester Green, um, who is who has played for this ballpark, um, posted the concert on my page. And when I saw this title, Divas Night Out, I just mm-hmm. said, wow, I need to know more about that. So would you tell us about the concert and just maybe the concept of the theme itself? Well, uh, you know, I want to I want to sort of tease you a bit uh when and you've been so very very kind to me to to post and to bring attention to this interview we're having and I sort of I got a, a little bit of a chuckle when I read the word legendary in in your, <laughs> um, I think I think the word should be more uh renegade uh soprano. <laughs> so Aww. and that that sort of well that sort of takes us to Diva's Night Out because um um, I think some throughout my singing career, sometimes people have not known what to do with me because one of the things that I was always taught to to be able to do was to be versatile, and so I like a lot of variety, a lot of lot different repertoire, different genres, you know. And I just love that crossing over. I love crossing the lines and blurring the lines, if you will. And so when I was approached by the National Chamber Ensemble to do a concert with them, we wanted something unique rather than just the traditional recital format. And I, I said, well, you know, I do a lot of interesting things. Why don't we, we we consider something that might smack of trading places? Because um, the ensemble is led by uh, Leo Shisansky, who is a violinist. And uh, he was uh, very much uh, open to the idea. And, you know, um, I, along with my uh, pianist, uh, Jose Caceres, we always consider the audience when we're planning a recital. And so we we consider what what the audience is getting and how uh, we appreciate the fact that they got dressed to come out to see us live. That's huge, especially today when things can be enjoyed in the comfort of your own home uh, via the Internet or or 
television, HD or video or whatever. So when people get dressed and they come out to a live performance, um, that's something that performers need to really appreciate and, and understand and, and, and thank be thankful for. So I wanted to create a program that was going to be fascinating for the audience and not something that would be very predictable. So Divas Night Out, as a title, allowed us to just pick, choose, and refuse, you see. So uh, that's what we've done. Uh, we've put in a few traditional things just to sort of, you know, cap it, uh, uh, bookend it, if you will. But in the middle, there's a journey, <laughs> and I don't want to give it away. <laughs> but we, we have some, as I say in my in my advertisement for it, um, I have a website if people want to find out more information about where it is and the time and that sort of thing. It's called uh, www.divasnightout, as one word, .net. And uh, on there I say that we have some pretty enticing collaborations between violin and voice. Mm. I, I'm just, I'm just so, my curiosity is just peaked now if you, you've given <laughs> all these little hits. Yes. And you're teasing me because you won't go into detail. But that's no, I won't. Right. But I, I just, I just because I think it is. I'm, I don't, you know, of all my colleagues that I know, I don't know very many uh, that, um, you know, will, will, as I say, be renegade enough to, to try this. Um, but I just, it's a, it's just a great deal of fun, and it's fun for me, and it's fun for the audience, and that's, I think that's what it should be about—an evening of total enjoyment. Could you tell me a little bit more about um, the venue itself, Artisphere? Yeah, it's uh, the Roslyn Spectrum Theater in Arlington, Virginia. Um, I have never performed there before, so this will be a new experience for me performing there as well. But um, it's a—I think it's a lovely little jewel box of a theater, and um, I'm, there are many. I think Lowell Lieberman just finished playing there some of his own compositions. So I think it's uh, it's probably up and coming as a as a a recognized venue. Oh, that's wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit more about the the date and the time? And so if people want to come, they can put that on their yeah, calendar. Yeah, absolutely. It's Saturday, March 26th at 7.30 p.m. in the Roslyn Spectrum Theater, Arlington, Virginia. So everybody, mark your calendars, March 26th. I will definitely be there, and so I will okay. post it on my Facebook page as well so we you, we can all be there and, and just be at this uh, wonderful mix of music, and it, it should be a magnificent experience. Now I'm going to move on um, to another subject that you kind of touched on because you spoke on being a renegade and, and basically being uh, versatile. Tell me about your involvement in Leslie Burr's, uh American Opera Danquay. How did that come about? Well, I've done many uh, roles uh, with Opera Columbus. I've done, uh, let's see, I've done Violetta, Madame Butterfly, Susanna, Liu. And so I have an ongoing uh, love affair with Opera Columbus. And uh, at the time, William Russell was the general manager, and he knew Leslie Burrs, and Leslie Burrs approached him about writing an opera um, on a sp specific story about the dias African diaspora, and uh, he wanted to mix it with fantasy and reality. And Bill Russell told, um, I'll call him William Russell so they won't think he's a basketball player, <laughs> but <laughs> William Russell um, uh, introduced Leslie to me. And um, I must say that this uh, was a unique opportunity for me to begin what has become a unique journey for me personally to work with living composers. And so what 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 happened after that was that Leslie, who lives in Philadelphia, began writing various arias and choruses and parts to the opera and putting it together piece by piece. He would invite me up to a studio and I would sing the music for him. And he would then be able to to get an idea of how it would sound in my voice, and and even I would sing the the lines of the chorus for him. And this kept going and kept going, and after a while, he brought in a baritone, and we would sing some of the choruses as duets. And he would, of course, would sing the baritone aria, and I would sing the soprano aria. I sang all the soprano arias. All the voice categories are not for me, but I sang all of them. <laughs> but um, what happened was, Leslie. Uh, received an invitation to the Sorbonne in Paris to present his work 
and there was a composer, I think, forum there going on. And so we went over to Paris and presented it, and it was overwhelmingly well, so well received that it was just stunning. People were just stunned by it. And so, long story short, we came back, and we continued to do presentations of Van Cui in various concert settings, and this time we would add a chorus, and we'd add dancers, and we'd add all these different elements to it. So you could do it scaled down to just a jazz combo, piano, and two singers, or you could do it as a full-blown um, opera with orchestra. And, of course, the jazz combo was a was part and parcel of it. That's interspersed in throughout. And uh, Leslie plays a flute. He's a jazz flute. He's classically trained as well. And um, eventually, Opera Columbus picked up, the entire thing, and we presented it as a full opera in Columbus. It is such a small world. I mean, I'm never just, I'm just always amazed at how small the world is because when I was a student at Virginia State University, Mm -hmm. um, I had the privilege of studying um, some of my voice, especially opera workshop with Lisa Edwards Burrs, who I would find Mm -hmm. out is Leslie Burrs' sister-in-law. Exactly. And so she sang in one of those productions also. So I'm just mm-hmm. like, this is like a, a wow moment. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Lisa and I um, have performed together, yes, and it's just been wonderful. It's wonderful to have that. As I'm telling you, it's a very small world, very small. Now, talk about your career. You you pretty much have, have uh, enjoyed success performing in opera and oratorio and the like. But talk about your career as far as as a teacher. You you now at the University of Maryland, um, basically known as a well-respected voice teacher. What advice do you give to uh, these young students who are coming to the School of Music um, in aspirations of performing or pursuing a career as a professional opera singer? The first thing I always ask a singer that I'm about to teach is, why do you want to sing? I have to know why a person wants to pursue this course. And and if it's life and death and I can't live without it, then I say, fine, <laughs> you know, welcome. But my advice is study, study, study. You must know the tools of your craft. You must know every aspect of your craft. And what I find so much of the time is someone may be very bright, uh, intellectually, left brain. You know, we go through our whole pattern of schooling from kindergarten up through 12th grade is to over-exercise the left brain. I mean, even we have problems with uh, agencies understanding how important the arts and physical education are to the well-roundedness of any student. But I find that when they come into the university and they want to then specialize in the study of singing or music, there's a a very much dwarfed side to the right hemisphere of the brain, and that spontaneous performing side needs to be really exercised and brought up. And so it's it's a tricky thing to understand how to study for that, how to study to become a performer, how to study to become uh, an instrument that is transparent, that is excellent at communication. So all of these things, you need, of course, the left hemisphere to feed you the sequence and the words and the, the rhythm and the pitch and all those things. But you, to get them to, to incorporate all of that and shift it to right hemisphere so they can actually express themselves is a real challenge. And it, some of it's because they, they don't know themselves. They don't know their instruments. I mean, you hear this phrase, the body is the instrument. They say the the the, the uh, body is ninety percent. The body is one hundred percent. The brain is one hundred percent. You need all of that because we can't touch our voice with our fingers. We can only touch it with our minds. And and voice is a gas. It's not a solid. So we're trying to do something that is mystical. <laughs> we're trying to do something that is magical. And so we have to fully comprehend and understand everything that goes into that. So, so that is what I stress when I teach. That is, that is that brings me to a, a thought. Um, many many African American singers who I've had the privilege to interview uh, in the past, I always ask the question, and I'm not sure um, where it is, but that that brings me to a thought. Well, the role of the church, because I know personally for me, um, singing, I was just the opposite. Like I came from a real um, 
background where the church music really was kind of the root of it. So I had more of an emotional uh, expressiveness with music rather than really knowing the theory. So do you ever encounter any students in your studio who perhaps maybe come from a gospel background and have to make an adjustment or all of them really for the most part well prepared? No, you know, that's an interesting question, Patrick, because um, what I try to do, and I've certainly had students that that have a gospel background, and uh, it's it's a bit of a challenge for them uh, because um, they will come and, to your point, there's an emotional uh, openness, there's a freedom there that is absolutely enticing and, and you want to keep that in place. But at the same time, they have to understand the stylistic difference of singing classical music and and the physically technical difference of handling the instrument for classical music than they would for gospel. And I I always tell my students, I don't want to get in between you and how you worship, but I think that handling the voice for singing spirituals uh, and, and music that is in the gospel style can be done with the classical technique. So if I find that a student uh, needs that kind of work, needs that kind of finesse brought into how they handle the instrument, I may ask them not to sing in in the way they're used to for a while in order that they can grab a hold of this concept of how to handle the voice in a healthy way because one thing we don't have as classical singers is a microphone. So we have to learn how to project the voice safely through head resonance. And for the most part, that you you cannot have an over, you know, too much strength in the chest voice in order to learn to do this. And a lot of gospel singer, singing does that. It does have a preponderance of chest voice in it. So I try to be very careful not to touch the spirit of the person, but to get inside their head and to lead them technically to the place of safety with the physical body and the voice for singing. Now, that is a great perspective. And so if there are any um, students out there who may uh, encounter this particular issue, this is a a good uh, point to consider. Now, Mm -hmm. we've talked about opera and singing. What are some of your your personal interests and, and hobbies that you do when you're not singing and you're not teaching? What do you like to do? Yoga. Qigong, and I love to play the cello. Cello. <laughs> well, I'm still I'm still a student, but yes, the 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 voice after the human voice, it's the cello for me. Oh right, so you so you're a budding Pablo Casals. Um. Well, let's let's not let's not do any name dropping yet, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> That that is so true. Just as we as we begin to just to round out um, the interview, I definitely want to thank you so much for for taking this time on this Presidents Day to to um, share with the listeners about your career because I know that it's a lot that has been already gleaned from just this bit of conversation. I want to talk to you. Uh, I want to go back to that point that you mentioned about uh, versatility because you have certainly uh, been quite versatile in your choice of repertoire, particularly when we when I think of the Baroque period. Could you perhaps maybe touch on your experience of working with uh, Alan Curtis when you all recorded the Monteverde recording of the Coronation of Pompeia? Yes, um, that was another thrilling experience. Uh, when Alan Curtis approached me to do Pompeia, I actually rejected him. I said, no, thank you. And the reason being, I had heard the role sung by a lovely soprano. Um, I can't remember her name right now. Uh, she'd done it at Washington Opera. And um, I thought her personality, her acting skill, her voice, I thought it was all perfect. But I thought the role to be a little bit too middle voice and too low for me to really bring any kind of reality. And um, Alan assured me that he wanted me to come over to Innsbruck, Spoleto, and Venice to do the role and that he would guide me through and show me because the opera houses, they were much smaller and that my voice would be more than big enough to to handle this role. But he thought that I had the personality and what what he wanted to see in the role of Popea. And let me tell you, 
when I finally agreed, I mean, it took about eight phone calls, but when I finally agreed and I went over to Italy to begin coaching and working with him, because he had a company together. All the other the singers were together as a company for this particular production that he was doing, his version, and which is different from the Court version. But um, when he began to show me how my natural sound uh, was enough of the fullness but that if I slimmed that down, you know, I could get that very, very sort of uh, intimate texture that he wanted. And he, he had seen me do an opera in uh, Brooklyn, a Baroque opera, so he knew that I had the ability to do that uh, on this role, uh, Popea. And so when I began to study and when I finally began to perform it, I, again, just like the image, I fell in love with Monteverdi. I fell in love with this role of Popea. And uh, the performance that you uh, hear, the recorded, that's a live performance that we mm. recorded in Venice. So it was, uh, we did, uh, we were in Spoleto first initially. We did seven performances. We had to do one performance for the press only. There was something like 147 newspapers represented in that one performance. And Alan was so elated by the response that he came to my hotel room and his arms were full of newspapers in every language you could think of. And he just threw them on the floor. He said, you're a star. Miss <laughs> <So, laughs> <it was laughs> Bartham, I do, I do see that we've had a caller waiting online to speak this whole interview. Uh, is it possible to, for them to join us to perhaps entertain a question? Okay, sure. Okay, Good afternoon, caller. You're on the air. Good afternoon, caller. You're on the air. Miss hmm. Baltimore, you still there? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. They must. They must have hung up. I. I okay. Clicked to join them. Um. I'm sorry about that. That the particular caller had been on the air waiting <laughs> the majority oh, of the time, so I wanted I'm, to give I'm them so the sorry, opportunity. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. Just want to give him the opportunity uh, to speak. But back to the performance of the Monte Verde. Was, was Ben Holt involved in that recording also? Yeah. Yes. You know, it was interesting. I uh, I met Ben when I did an opera by William Grant Still. Now, that was recorded by a Canadian television company. It's called A Bayou Legend. And Ben and I are in that together. And that's where I met him. And... Um, Alan Curtis, uh, this time we, we'd already done the, um, the Popeye, I think, in Spoleto, and Alan was calling me about doing more performances in Venice, and he was looking. He said, I'm looking for a very special baritone. I have these stories, you see. And I said, a very special baritone. <laughs> he said, yes. And he has to be tall and slim and funny. He has to be able to do comedy. I said, Really? Ben Holt. There was no one else that came to my mind but Ben Holt. I said, I know a baritone like that. I gave Alan Ben's number. They talked. And when I went over to Venice, Ben Holt was there. And that's how we did that performance together. That is magnificent. Now, just moving forward, we know about your performance coming up at Artist at Artist Fair Divas Night Out, which I encourage mm-hmm. all of my listeners to definitely support on March 26th. I would definitely be in the house, if, if you will. So I hope that you would definitely <laughs> uh, join, and I'll continue to tweet information about that and post on my Facebook page about that as well. But just in terms of of future projects, what what is there left for Common Bother to do? What do you see yourself doing beyond that concert as far as maybe new recordings or repertoire or just any projects in general? Oh, yes. I have I have lots of, of, of things that I want to do. I want to record the um, Messian Pons Pour Me. Uh, I want to record my second album of The Art of Christmas, uh, my Christmas CD that's also available at Amazon and CDBaby.com. Um, and also I want to create a worldwide series of master class seminars, and I want to do that in five major places in the world, the USA, China, Taiwan, London, Russia, Australia. I'd just like to be able to 
go around the world and help young singers just to, to develop into all that they can be. I've done master classes in Russia and China before, and I thoroughly enjoy it. And many of the students that I've trained over here are back in their home countries teaching at universities. So that's very rewarding and uh, what they call the Western style. So that's very rewarding to unlock voices and to free them and to hear the beautiful, beautiful singers that are developing. So that's part of my goal. And to do, I want to do many more recordings. I want to continue to work with living composers. Uh, I'm so excited about a few of those projects. I can't speak to them at this moment, but I'm excited about a few of those projects that will be coming up very soon. You know, when you spoke of the, the instance of teaching master classes, that made me think about when um, Terry Allen, who is the co-founder of Coalition for African Americans of Performing Arts, and mm-hmm. I ran into you and your husband at the National um, Endowment of the Arts at the Opera Honors. And that made me yes. think about Martina Arroyo, who was among the honorees, and she has this uh, foundation that uh, trains singers extensively. So that, that really made me think about that, and I definitely wish my my best wishes to you in, in these endeavors of master classes because I can see where such a program can definitely uh, be enhanced by your, your leadership, and, and I'm just really uh, wholeheartedly congratulate you on, on those efforts. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Patrick. Now, as we move to a close, we have a few more uh, minutes left. I'm very sorry that, that we lost the caller, but it looks like they might be back on the air again. Let me check. Okay. Good afternoon, caller. You're on the air. Hmm. They're, they're still not I, there. I but, think maybe they, just, they, but you have to push the number one, maybe. The one, you know, if you push the number one. Maybe, yeah, can... maybe that's maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But it, I wanted to talk to you about something else in terms of repertoire. When I was at Shenandoah Conservatory, I was there in my master's program from 2003 to 2005. But I took a class devoted to Spanish vocal literature. It was taught by Donna Goldstrand, who is professor of music there. And I was so happy to be in that class. And one of the excerpts, I forgot which it was, but it was from your Spanish disc. Mm-hmm. It was Con a Amores. recording of you singing. Yes, Con Amores is the name of that album. Yes, yes. And when I heard you, I said out loud, because they never said who it was. They mm-hmm. had the CD on the desk, but I kind of got, and I said, that's Carver Baltra. <laughs> so it was yes. such an honor to be in that class in the graduate level, because at that time I had always you know, heard your name so so many times I've heard your name, but I had never had the opportunity to hear you. And, in fact, I, I have seen the disc on um, Amazon. But to be sitting in that class and to hear the recording and then you are the person that they're talking about being an authority in the performance of, of Spanish songs, I was just so happy because you were also in the group uh, with Victoria um, De, Los uh, De Los Angeles and yeah. also uh, Montessorat Caballé. Yes, so to yes. hear you grouped in that group of sopranos of those Spanish songs, I was like, wow. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, though, and those two, uh, I mean, um, Victoria de los Angeles, again, for a Spanish song repertoire, has just been my model. And uh, Teresa Beganza, Montserrat Caballé, all of those are just, um, I look I look to the great performers for style, for phrasing, for, for just anything that is unique and and what I try to do is I I try and get inspired by that to find within myself what what is unique, what I can bring that is unique. And so that's and that's what I try to train my students to to listen, but you listen to the great singers because they found their own style, they found a way of handling their instrument that just speaks to you. And so that is what you you know the the the, the job is for each individual artist. And I know that that's what the composer is expecting. Whoever picks up their music has the right to make it real, you see. So that's, it's, to me, it's just um, that when I saw that statement and those ladies' names in the same sentence as mine, I was humbled beyond belief, humbled beyond belief. 
you know, at the tail end of this interview now, I see that, you know, I have several calls that they're dying to talk to you. So let's <laughs> try this one more time. Okay. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patrick. This is Charlene Moore Cooper from your new group that you started. And I knew Carmen in years back. As a matter of fact, we did a couple of tree initiatives together. It's so wonderful to hear from you again, Carmen. Oh my and goodness. I did not know that you were at U University of uh, Maryland. Yes. Because once I was widowed, I moved to Beltsville, which is just up the street from you. <laughs> well, I've been at Maryland for about 26 years now. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, was, yeah, I was over at Howard at the School of Divinity, yes. playing organ and doing music with the uh, singers there and with the preachers and all of that kind of thing. Fantastic. And I did not know that you were back here. It's wonderful. I've heard about you several times, and I was so pleased when Patrick said uh, this was going to be on today, and because it's a holiday, I'm home, (laughs) so I can hear it. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Lovely to speak with you again. Oh, wow. You take care of yourself. You're marvelous, and I'm just so proud that once we sang together. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. You take care, dear. Okay, thank Uh, you. Thank you so much for calling. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Ms. Barthel, are you still there? Yes, I'm here. This one particular call that I keep trying to I keep trying to join them to the conversation and they don't seem to want to be on. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but back to that was um, Charlene Moore Cooper, who is actually one of the members of the Ben Hope Memorial Branch of the National Association of Negro Musicians, and I must definitely mention that group, which is uh, the new branch here in Washington D.C. And I was I was definitely humbled to be uh, recently elected as president, so that is an, an honor okay. for one of the members to call and to to be able to to speak to you in that in that fashion. So I'm definitely happy about that. Well, I want to say again, thank you so much, Ms. Barbara, for joining us today. It's been a, a treat to really dig deep into some of the highlights of your career, and I want to say that I'm looking forward to the March 26th concert, Divas Night Out. <laughs> Listeners, yeah. I know that you won't be disappointed just by the title itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patrick, thank you. I think you're doing a wonderful job with this uh, new venture you're, you're, you're on, and I think it's very necessary, and I do appreciate you for doing this. Thank you so much. I do also want to remind listeners that on March the 9th at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, our next installment in the uh, Opera Diva series will be dramatic soprano Christine Brewer. So you definitely want to tune in on March the 9th for that special broadcast. Again, I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice of classical music, and I do hope that you have a great day. Thank you.